morning. Today it is my plan, by the grace of God, to return to a passage that we first started to look at way back on New Year's Day in my occasional series on Ephesians. Some might complain it's taking him six months to get through this passage, but uh, I will be concentrating predominantly on uh, the first chapter of Ephesians, verses 22 and 23, but in order to get the context, we should uh, take a look at the passage in its full. In your pew Bibles, on page 827, you'll find the text. I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Pray with me, please. Spirit of God, as we come before this, the text of your inspired word, I pray that our hearts would be humbled and our minds would be opened, that we may learn the glorious truths that are contained within. And I pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. My focus last January was the the ascension and exaltation of Jesus Christ, which is found as a particular teaching of the passage that we have just read. Uh, The ascension of Christ, you will remember, uh, rather than being a minor event that was tacked on to the end of his earthly mission, was in fact the fulfillment of divine promise. It was a real historical space-time event, meaning that it really happened, uh, that proved Jesus' success in completing that mission and emphatically ratified his obedience and atoning sacrifice as being thoroughly acceptable to the Father. And it has culminated now in the establishment of an everlasting glorious kingdom of authority and power, the like of which we who are in Christ now barely recognize, but will be privileged to share for all eternity. Today, we're going to return to this passage, but looking at mostly at the concluding verses of this chapter and dig a little deeper into the meaning of Christ's exaltation, particularly for the church who are the people of God. The passage refers to the, as George had put it previously, the supremacy of Christ, that he has been put in a position by God the Father in sovereignty over all things. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come, and God placed all things under his feet. That idea of all things, or everything, it's a very comprehensive word. All things without exception. 
things above, things here on the earth, and things below, things in the highest heavens, the far reaches of the universe, and perhaps even beyond that, and things down to the tiniest subatomic particle. The uh, one-time prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, is famous for having remarked, in the total expanse of human life, there is not a single square inch of which the Christ who alone is sovereign does not declare, that is mine. He truly is the owner of everything. Now, emphasize that this was not a cosmic accident, and this was not some lucky turn of events. God the Father has consciously, by choice, according to his good purposes, as Paul has previously established in this passage, placed all things under the feet of Christ, which is the position of complete sovereignty for him and of complete subjugation for all those other things. If you remember from Psalm 2, God has made the enemies of the Son, all those who oppose him, his footstool, which is a posture of humiliation. Note again that it is God the Father who has done this, and no other being may contradict or contravene or veto or challenge that which God has determined. Christ is sovereign. Christ is Lord. No question. Period. End of statement. He has been appointed, as the text says, to be head over everything for the church. And I want to spend a little bit of time this morning taking apart the meaning of this concept of head. It has two main meanings, as is indicated in your um, in your outline. First of all, of course, there's the natural sense of authority or boss or director. Because Paul has just been talking about rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, the natural first thought we would have when we hear this uh, word head used is in the sense of leader or king or the person in charge, and this is certainly true. If the universe has an organizational flowchart, Jesus Christ is at the very top. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He rules, he reigns, he is the boss of you and me and everything else. The second meaning of head, or in the Greek word kephale, which is the one that we derive the anatomical adjective cephalic from, which is, I'm sure, a word that you use all the time in your everyday speech, Um, but it means uh, that which relates to the head or the structure that sits upon the neck and shoulders. And those of us in medicine have a great use for this word. There are a number of anatomical terms and other things that are applied using this word. There are, for instance, uh, cephalic sinuses deep within the structure of the head. Uh, If you have too much spinal fluid in your head, uh, that is what's referred to as hydrocephalus. Um, If you undergo a test to have your brain waves measured or assessed, That is what's referred to as an electroencephalogram, otherwise known as an EEG. And if you are unhappily bitten by an infected mosquito and you have an inflammation of the brain, that's what's referred to as encephalitis. And I certainly hope you're taking notes because there's going to be a quiz at the end. (laughs) Now, because of what Paul will say about this head momentarily, we should pause and consider some of the properties of a head. 
Now, again, anatomically, much of the head consists of a bony box called the skull, and the chief role of the skull is to support and protect that most vital of all of our organs, which is the brain and the other elements of the central nervous system that exist above the spinal cord. And this is a hugely important organ that has many functions. First of all, it is the seat of consciousness. Our wakefulness or our awareness of being or existing and living and associating with an outside world and with other living beings is predominantly seated within the brain. And to lose this temporarily usually means you have fallen asleep. For longer periods, you may be in a coma. To lose consciousness permanently is commonly tantamount to death, or at least a living death such as a permanent vegetative state. So this sense of wakefulness, which is within the brain, is hugely important. It is also the center of direction, of control, and regulation. The brain exerts control over muscle movement and the purposeful means of propulsion through space and interaction via manipulation, using our hands to interact with objects. The brain directs and coordinates the various functions of the body and regulates vital operational functions such as temperature, heart rate, and breathing. The brain is the center of perception. Most of our sensory knowledge is imparted through specialized organs which themselves are within our heads, sight, hearing, smell, and taste, and are interpreted by the brain. So the brain takes in this information about our surroundings and permits us to learn and develop appropriate responses. And lastly, but certainly not comprehensively, um, it is the center of language and communication. Our facility for language and the ability to process information given to us by spoken and written means and to respond in kind is particularly centered within the brain. So in all these ways, the brain coordinates and directs the activities of the body and allows appropriate interaction with the environment, both internal and external, to maximize good and avoid danger or harm. The second sense within this structure is that of the mind. And here we move into more mysterious territory. Uh, Neuroscience has only begun to uh, examine or to understand, really, the sense of the mind, which is almost second nature to us. Uh, Nevertheless, this is where, among other things, where there is the identity or the animating spirit, the sense of self, of unique existence or of distinctive being. That which I call me, my sense of self, is within the mind, and the sense of identity extends to the entire organism. It's not just the structures in between my ears or behind my eyes that is me, but my entire being. It is the seat of personality, all the peculiar qualities and traits that make up the self, particularly the ways in which the individual interacts with others and with his environment. Personality embodies morality and will and conscience. A person is a moral entity capable of making choices and being responsible for them and their consequences. And it is the seat of intelligence or wisdom or creativity. Thought, abstraction, the acquisition of knowledge through reason and sense perception, and the synthesis of concepts leading to other concepts, the apprehension of God, the ability to discover, the ability to deduce and to infer, to intuit, to perceive, or to conceive novelty. There is a great deal that is therefore packed into this little word. And you might be saying at this point, well, this is one great big digression. What does he mean getting off on all of this stuff about physiology of the brain and the mind? 
Well, I put it to you that Paul uses this metaphor for a reason. And we're going to get into that here momentarily, but I'm going to pause for a moment to consider particularly the use of the mind and recall to your memories, which is another function, of course, of the brain, um, his words at the very end of the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, in which he says, but we have the mind of Christ. And this really hits at what is being brought apart in this passage here that we're going to find out here momentarily. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul writes, the Father has appointed Jesus Christ to be head over everything for the church on behalf of, for the benefit of, or the good of, on purpose, intentionally. It is a very good thing for the church that Christ is the head over all things, and particularly to be head over the church. The analogy of the church as the body of Christ is one that's very familiar to us from the New Testament. Uh, It occurs fairly commonly in Paul's letters. We, or at least I, don't often, however, think of it in the reverse. And this is the particular sense that he's trying to bring out here, even though he doesn't speak of it in such length as he often does when he treats the analogy of the body. This concept of Christ being the head of the body is very important. The church is the body of Christ, as we've already acknowledged. Christ himself is the head of the body, and no one else is. There have been plenty of individuals down through the course of human history that have arrogated to themselves the idea that they or he or she may be the head of the church on earth. And that is simply not the case. There is only one head of the body of Christ, and that is Christ himself. Head and body go together. They are an organic unity. They have to be together. They are of one organism. They are united. You can distinguish between the head and the body, but you may not separate them. Decapitation has deadly consequences, after all. It is extremely, indeed vital, in the absolute meaning of that word, that the head and the body be integrated, or specifically that the body be integrated with the head. Without the head, the body collapses. It cannot think, it cannot see, it cannot hear, it cannot take in nourishment. It is leaderless and directionless. It goes nowhere. If you have ever seen a body of anything without a head, you have seen a dead thing. We cannot conceive of a body that ignores the head, that does not do what the head directs. It would be a complete farce to have the head say one thing and the body do something completely different. So it should be, I tell you, with the body of Christ. For health and proper functioning, the body must heed the head. It must be led by the head, it must accept regulation by the head, it must receive instruction from the head, it must receive its nourishment from the head, it must receive its mind its thoughts, its direction from the head. God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, for the benefit of the church, which is his body. We're going to expand on this, God willing, 
when I next become before you in September, and we go back to the first 14 verses of chapter 1 of Ephesians, but a little bit now. First and foremost, we win. Because the church is one with Christ, his victory is ours. He has conquered. He was dead, and he is now alive. And not just alive, but triumphant and exalted, as we talked about in January. The Father has put all his enemies under his feet. If we are in union with him, his feet are our feet, and therefore our enemies are under our feet as well. Heirs and joint heirs. The firstborn son of all creation has inherited everything. Everything. Again, a very comprehensive word. The Father has given him all things, and so we too share in this inheritance, which is the most fabulous and extravagant inheritance that a man has ever known. Believe it or not, the universe is ours so long as we are united with Christ. I'm reminded at this point of an observation of C.S. Lewis talking about how little we recognize the depths of our riches in Christ. He said that we content ourselves with mud puddles when we could have had a fabulous vacation at the beach. Co-regents. Jesus is king, the ultimate and only king. He reigns. I think I've emphasized that point sufficiently. And so do we, if we share in him. I think for a moment, whoever heard of a crowned head that had no body? The whole is king, not just the head, although it is the head that bears the crown. By the grace of God, the extravagant generousness of Jesus Christ, we who are united with him are co-regents. We reign with him. Now dimly, someday, in a very visible and glorious way. The church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Um, The passage ends on a somewhat difficult note from an interpretation standpoint. Um, Commentators and translators have differed as to the meaning of this term fullness and the grammar of exactly how everything fits here together. And there are three main ways that this may work itself out here. First of all, this concept of the fullness of him who fills everything in every way may be a description of Christ himself. It may mean that Christ is the fullness of God who himself fills all. God, after all, is present everywhere, and Christ is the fullest, most complete manifestation of the being of God. If you remember your Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, you'll know exactly whereof I speak. It may lead to some difficulty, however, in confusing the persons of the Trinity unnecessarily. So this, uh, this particular interpretation may have uh, a few holes in it. Uh, secondly, it may be a description of the church. Fullness in the sense that somehow the church completes Christ, and immediately that's probably going to grate on a few. Um, how can Christ possibly be incomplete without the church? How, how is there any way in which the Son of God is in any way deficient or needs something else to fill him up? And certainly it's not in the sense of his own being. The Son of God cannot be incomplete in any way. Uh, but perhaps there may be a functional sense in which the church completes Christ. I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that a head has a body. A head needs a body. 
think of some other analogies that are present in the scriptures on this point. Uh, for instance, what is a bridegroom without a bride? It's a pretty sad bachelor that's been left at the altar. A king requires a people to rule. Whoever heard of a king who had no people, who had no country? A king who has no subject rules over a barren kingdom. And this is a sad or a pitiable or a futile or irrelevant or barren circumstance, but there is absolutely nothing sad or pitiable or irrelevant or barren about Jesus Christ. Thirdly, it may be that this fullness refers to the church as that which Christ fills. As he fills all things in life, the universe and everything, as the saying goes, he fills her with his own life, his spirit. So ultimately, this last portion of our passage resists final and definitive interpretation. But if we consider the totality of what Paul has written in his first chapter and his emphasis upon the essential unity of Jesus Christ and his church, it may be wisest to think of this phrase as being one of those, what I refer to as inspired prisms in the scripture, something that you can turn in several different aspects and have different facets revealed to you. So what? What does all this have to do with us now? Well, first and foremost, I would hope that it would give us a renewed perspective on who we are. Oftentimes in our day-to-day living, we can get so caught up in the details, uh, in the, uh, I like that phrase, the American narcotic of busyness that was uh, referred to in our confessional uh, prayer this morning. Um, we get so distracted. We are, again, we're, we're like those little kids in the mud puddle, having absolutely no idea that Dad has bought us tickets to, I don't know, Disney World. Um, and yet we refuse to leave the mud puddle because we think that that's the, the height and the depth and the width of all of our fondest dreams. And we can't imagine anything better than that. Paul is telling us in this passage that there is just so much more. And again, we see it dimly. We're so distracted by the cares of this world. Um, there's so many criticisms and problems and skeptics, it gets very tempting to think very little of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. But I would hope, as I think Paul would hope, as he was trying to teach the Ephesians this morning, that we can have a greater realization for who we truly are in Jesus Christ and therefore a greater gratitude and a more humble reliance upon him and his spirit to counter the problems that we encounter on a daily basis. I would commend to you, as you go forward this week, um, to go back to this passage, read it again, and really get a sense of what it is that Paul tells us, inspired as he was by the Holy Spirit, who is that very mind of Christ that we were talking about earlier, just who you are in Jesus Christ, not for purposes of self-glorification, but for purposes of strengthening and edification for confidence that you can go out and tell everybody else in the world who does not know this Jesus Christ the reality of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that we serve. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for your inspired word. 
We confess that we don't often pay adequate attention or really truly grasp what it is that your word tells us. Pray, Father, by your sovereign Holy Spirit that you would enlighten us and illuminate us that we may truly receive, perceive, and enjoy in the full sense of the joy aspect of that word the reality of who we are in Christ Jesus, remembering it is solely by your grace that we are saved through faith in him in whose name we pray. Amen.